This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'll be a poet, a writer, a dramatist. Somehow or other, I'll be famous. And if not famous, I'll be notorious. Or perhaps I'll lead the life of pleasure for a time. And then, who knows, rest and do nothing. What does Plato say is the highest end that man can attain here below? To sit down and contemplate the good? Perhaps that will be the end of me too. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on the little-known facts. And today, we'll be pulling the curtain back to get a better look at renowned playwright, artistic icon, and political martyr, one of the world's most quoted and celebrated authors in the world, Oscar Wilde. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. Now, the life of Oscar Wilde. Just as he predicted, he would, in fact, achieve worldwide fame for his prolific writing career and notoriety for his public scandals, the details of which would be his tragic downfall. Famous for his flamboyant public persona, his sharp, unmatchable wit, and his lavish taste in fashion and art, he left the world both dazzled and dismayed. An outspoken advocate for freedom of expression, he was famously persecuted for, quote, acts of gross indecency, or consensual sex in private with members of his own sex. These charges and the subsequent prison sentence he endured placed him in history as a martyr and prominent figure in the gay rights movement. Despite being one of literature's most quoted authors, there's some debate among historians over whether or not his one-liners were original. Many believe that his comments and witticisms took on a life of their own as a result of the exaggerated legend that surrounded his persona. Wilde's larger-than-life legacy was founded on rumor, myth, and controversial accounts of his behavior. He's one of the earliest true celebrities, prioritizing notoriety over achievement. He once wrote, quote, To get into the best society nowadays, one has to either feed people, amuse people, or shock people. That is all. Though it seems he was never lacking in confidence, he is quoted as saying, Biography lends to death a new terror. I'm sure you're wondering what his biography might reveal that could be so troubling to him. Uh, yes. Well, let's dive in and find out. In his death, he would become a prominent figure in the midst of the gay rights movement. And so it is only fitting that his birth would take place in the throes of another important political moment in history. It was the 1840s, and the Young Irelanders Party, which sought political revolution, was in full tilt. Wilde's mother, Jane Francesca Elgie, lived in Dublin and wrote for the rebellion under several pseudonyms, the most famous being Speranza. She wrote elegantly and passionately, a skill her son would inherit, advocating for women's rights and taking up a pro-Irish, anti-British position in her daring, provocative essays. 
Her writing was published in the nationalist newspaper run by the Young Ireland movement called The Nation, a platform that attracted a great deal of attention for its fierce, emotional, and inflammatory rhetoric. There is some dispute among historians over how Jane met her future husband, the established ophthalmologist William Wilde. Some believed her article entitled Yachta Alia Est, or The Die is Cast, was the essay that captured the physician's attention. In addition to being a prominent eye doctor, William Wilde was also a writer and worked as the editor for the Dublin Quarterly Journal of Medical Science. Some historians believe that it was in this role that he actually met Jane when she reviewed his book, The Beauties of the Boyne and Blackwater, in The Nation. Regardless, historians do agree that William was drawn to Jane's public essays. But Mr. Wilde wasn't the only one who took note of Jane's writing. Yakta Alia Est was a brazen call for riot and rebellion against the government, which did not go unnoticed. The castle of Dublin shut down the newspaper and brought its editor, Charles Gavin Duffy, before the court on charges of sedition and high treason. But Duffy refused to give the true identity of Speranza, and when he was about to be sentenced, Jane, with her natural flair of theatrics, stood up in the courtroom and to claim ownership of the piece, she dramatically proclaimed, I and I alone am culprit, if culprit there be. And so she was arrested. Nope. Biographer accounts of the court hearing suggest that Jane was ignored altogether, which allowed her to escape any consequential backlash to her writings. Duffy was also later released on an appeal, leaving them both free to go. Ah, all's well that ends well. Yep, and that also meant that Speranza, uh, Jane, was free to marry William Wilde. I'm guessing her announcement in court didn't scare him off? Quite the opposite. Some even think that the couple's shared political values played a big part in bringing them together. William Wilde was already a highly renowned eye surgeon. He was so well regarded, in fact, that he had a list of celebrity patients and had been knighted for his work. He also notably dedicated his practice to caring for the poor. He opened a facility that was free of charge for those less fortunate and covered the cost to run it all on his own. The Wilds developed a bit of a reputation together. William and Lady Wilde, as she came to be known, were an eccentric couple, and they held lively dinner parties where both drink and talk of politics flowed freely. After Jane gave birth to her first son, William, she desperately wanted a little girl and quickly became pregnant with her second child. But on October 16, 1854, Lady Wilde gave birth to a second son, whom she named Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. That's a mouthful. Oh, no kidding. A big name like that would obviously call for a big personality. He did shorten it, though, discarding his middle names when publishing his works. He stated that a name so prominent in people's mouths must be easier to say. Such confidence. Oh, yes. Oscar Wilde never doubted his potential to become a household name. But before he became the verbose poet, watched by the entire world, he first had to grow up under the watch of his mother. Something tells me it was a bit of an unconventional childhood. You can say that again. Lady Wilde was indeed an eccentric mother. In fact, she spent a great deal of time creating the identity she wished she had. She would, for instance, change her age as it suited her and told people that she was a descendant of Dante, which is unfounded. Many historians believe she even Italianized her middle name from Francis to Francesca to help make this claim more believable. It was very important to Lady Wilde to have control over her own narrative and image, and she taught Wilde from an early age that one's identity was a flexible thing that could be manipulated for social gain. And so, with regards to Wilde, she created the reality she hoped for. Since she was so disappointed that Oscar was not a girl, she decided to dress him in conventional girls' clothing of the time. It's important to note that it was not uncommon for boys to wear dresses and tunics in mid-19th century Ireland, due to a superstition that little boys must be disguised from fairies who could steal them, but not little girls. What made the outfits Wilde's mother chose for him stand out were the velvets, frills, and lace trim, which was more typically reserved for the girls' clothing. There's even a famous photograph of Wilde with the tender age of two in a velvet dress with a full skirt and lace trim. 
When Wilde was three years old, his mother finally gave birth to a daughter, Isola Francesca Emily Wilde, who likely wore Wilde's hand-me-down dresses. Lady Wilde once wrote to a friend, Little Isola is rapidly taking her place as pet of the house. Lady Wilde educated her children from home. She read them young Irelander poems and inspired in Oscar a deep hunger for all sorts of literature, and the two formed a strong bond. Wilde said, All women become their mother, and that is their tragedy. No men do, and that is theirs. It is not lost on history, however, that Wilde, perhaps ironically, did turn out like his mother, carefully branding and foisting himself into the public eye, becoming famous for fame's sake. He took his mother's life lessons into the world with him, which, for better or worse, informed much of his personality, setting the stage, if you will, for his works to come. In 1864, just shy of 10, Wilde entered Portora Royal School in Fermanagh, 100 miles from his home in Dublin. Not surprisingly, Wilde was an unconventional and peculiar child. Striving for a distinguished look, he put great care into his attire. Most distinctly, it is rumored that he chose to wear a black silk top hat as part of his daily ensemble, despite the fact that such a hat was typically reserved for Sundays. More academic than athletic, he found it hard to bond with the other students, refusing to take part in sporting activities. His lack of skill likely contributed to his contempt for sports, as he once stated, quote, I never like to kick or be kicked. His sensitivity and peculiarities made him an oddball at Portora, but he had as little interest in socializing with his fellow students as they had with him. He much preferred to be left alone with a good book or to surround himself with the beauty of the world, rowing on the lake to watch the sunsets and picking flowers. But all the beauty he surrounded himself with was not enough to keep out the ugliness of life. In 1867, his younger sister Isola passed away suddenly from a fever at the age of 10, a loss that the 12-year-old Oscar felt very deeply. He expressed his grief in writing and commemorated her life in a simple, stylistic poem called Requiescat. The poem read, quote, Tread lightly, she is near, under the snow. Speak gently, she can hear. The daisies grow, all her bright golden hair, tarnished with rust. She that was young and fair, fallen to dust. The doctor who treated Isola made note of Wilde's pain, referring to it as, quote, lonely, inconsolable grief. He also noted that Wilde frequently visited his sister's grave and kept a piece of his sister's hair in a locket close to his heavy heart. At age 16, he was the top classic student in his last two years at Portora, and when he graduated in 1871, he was awarded the Royal School Scholarship to attend Trinity College in Dublin. Wilde did not believe his acceptance to Trinity College was much of an accomplishment. He felt that his drinking and fighting classmates were below him, ruffians who had little to offer in terms of academic competition or friendly companionship. He did little to endear himself to them. Though Wilde remained the butt of the joke to many of his peers at Trinity, he is said to have developed a new tactic for dealing with him at the university. On one infamous day, Wilde shared a poem that he had written at a class symposium. The emotional, heartfelt reading of the piece touched a number of his peers, except for one. The class bully was not impressed. Instead, he laughed and jeered at Wilde as a means to publicly humiliate him. But it backfired on the bully. Sure did. Enraged, Wilde stormed across the room to confront the bully and demanded to know what he thought was so funny. But the bully just laughed again, right in Wilde's face. <laughs> Wilde couldn't take any more of the boy's humiliation and slapped his heckler so hard across the face that the rest of the class jumped in to prevent things from getting out of control. But the insult was too much for Wilde to bear. It filled him with a rage that could not be contained. Wilde was ready for a fight. The boys convened behind the school before the end of the day to see the brawl. Everyone was eager to watch, but no one was willing to bet on Wilde. Much to everyone's surprise, Wilde took the bully down. 
Wilde brought a surprising aggression into the fight with him and knocked his opponent out before he could take one swing. Wilde kept at it, beating the bully until it was clear that he was the victor. A pivotal day for Wilde. This fight inspired a whole new confidence in him, which extended into his academics. After this confrontation, he returned to his studies invigorated and his grades soared, showing unprecedented improvement. It seems that all he needed was one win to prove to himself that he could succeed at whatever he set his mind to. Perhaps more so than this fight, others, and even Wilde himself, credited his success at Trinity to his mentor, John Pentland Mahaffey, was in his early 30s, 15 years Wilde senior, and was the most influential of Wilde's tutors at Trinity. Mahaffey had studied at Trinity, lived in Greece, and studied abroad with various tutors, but returned to Trinity and stayed on to teach, dedicating much of his life to the school. A gifted conversationalist and social climber, his sensibilities were a perfect match for young Oscar Wilde. Wilde referred to Mahaffey as his, quote, first and greatest teacher, under whose tutelage Wilde exceeded all expectations, earning accolades and honors of the highest degree, including a foundation scholarship and a Berkeley gold medal for his achievements in Greek studies. Wilde said, quote, It is a sad thing to think of, but there is no doubt that genius lasts longer than beauty. That accounts for the fact that we all take such pains to over-educate ourselves. Mahaffey thought that Wilde was even brighter than he had been as a student when he attended classes at Trinity roughly one decade earlier. Because of this, it was at Mahaffey's encouragement that Wilde left Trinity College after two years of study to attend school at Oxford. He was awarded the Demi Scholarship to study at Magdalen College at Oxford. Wilde entered Magdalen College at Oxford in 1874, the day after his 20th birthday. And it was here that Wilde finally found a space that was meant for him. He found Magdalen not only suitable for him to grow in, but to truly thrive. Wilde said, quote, I was the happiest man in the world when I entered Magdalen for the first time. Oxford was paradise to me. In his time at Oxford, he transformed himself from the timid, scholarly young man so easily bullied at Portora into the bold fashionista and bon vivant that we remember him as today. Here he plunged into the world of fashion and developed his tastes, which included a love for brown velvets, furs, derby hats, and most famously, a green tie. His outfits attracted great attention, if not for their impressive style, then for the amusement to those around him. He threw extravagant and lively parties, sparing no expense in treating his guests, which often left him in debt. But it was here, at these parties, that Wilde began to cultivate his brand as a conversationalist, defined by his piercing wit and performative behavior. Becoming one of the most quotable authors in the English language would not come without some effort. Wilde did not simply slip his quips into conversation as he thought of them. No, biographers frequently note that Wilde was rumored to plan and rehearse his party repartee in order to time his comments for the greatest comedic effect. He was carefully designing his public persona and always calculating the best way to capture the spotlight. He put great care into filling his life with decadence, and he decorated his room with peacock feathers, flowers, and famously, blue china, whose elegance moved him so deeply that he would often lament his inability to live up to them. He said, quote, "'Beauty is a form of genius, is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is one of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime.' It cannot be questioned. It makes princes of those who have it. In the 1860s, 10 years before Wilde set foot in Oxford, a group of men began to articulate their appreciation for beauty. They rebelled against what they viewed as the stifling conservative values of Victorian England. This group became leaders of what was known as the aesthetic movement. At its forefront were English artists, designers, and writers of the 1860s, most notably John Whistler, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and William Morris. 
These men railed against modern industrialism, which resulted in the dehumanization of design. According to John Ruskin, a famous critic of the time, Ruskin came to be very instrumental in Wilde's development as an esthete. The rise of no other party could have coincided better with the rise of Oscar Wilde than the aesthetic movement. It was a provocative, intellectual, and artistic movement that focused more on the pursuit of beauty and prioritized the physical allure of something over its potential for deeper meaning. The movement spread radically throughout Europe with the same spirit of the liberation movement in 1960s America and attracted all sorts of craftsmen, including musicians, architects, painters, metal workers, and furniture makers. Coined by French poet Théophile Gautier, the movement's mantra became art for art's sake and proposed that music, literature, paintings, and so on should be purely pleasurable on their own and enjoyed in the moment. One of the main tenets of aestheticism was that life should imitate art and not the other way around. It was a movement most suited to the ornate lifestyle of Oscar Wilde. Despite the disparaging critics who ridiculed the movement as tedious and shallow, Wilde took to it like a fish to water and soon established himself as a leading man of its philosophy. He studied its principles under Walter Pater and John Ruskin, both of whom inspired Wilde with their own takes on aestheticism. Pater gave Wilde a deep appreciation for art, and Ruskin colored it with meaning, preaching that the beauty of art should offer some benefit to society. Wilde studied at Oxford under Ruskin, the 35-year-old professor of fine art. In 1875, Wilde joined Ruskin's Hinksy Road project and traveled to Italy with a group of fellow undergraduates. There he attended Ruskin's lectures on the topic at the Aesthetic and Mathematics Schools of Art in Florence and participated in a project to clean up a broken down road, lining the edges with freshly planted flowers. It was a work of art that upheld Ruskin's philosophy about improving the community with art. Though he enjoyed camaraderie with Ruskin, their approach to aestheticism varied and eventually drove them apart. Ruskin believed in placing a moral value on art, and Wilde strongly disagreed. In addition to establishing his own distinct personal style, Wilde also spent his years at Oxford from 1874 to 1878 developing his voice as a creative writer, the same voice that would secure his position as a literary legend long after his death. While in Italy, studying under Ruskin, Wilde was inspired to write the poem Ravenna, which was awarded the Sir Roger Newdigat Prize in 1878, an honor for the best composition in English verse written by an undergraduate student at Oxford. Wilde drew great inspiration from the writing of Walter Pater, most notably his book Studies in the History of the Renaissance. Wilde referred to the text as his golden book and finally met Pater in his final year at Oxford and continued to grow his understanding and appreciation for the arts under Pater's tutelage. With the success of the Newdigate Prize in hand and an appreciation for aestheticism in his heart, Wilde graduated from Oxford in 1878 at age 24. Wilde was feeling directionless after Oxford and returned for a short stint to his home in Dublin. He tried to rekindle a romance with his childhood friend and sweetheart, Florence Balcombe, who grew up not far from his childhood home. But Wilde was met with disappointment when later that year she agreed to marry Bram Stoker instead. That's the same Bram Stoker who wrote Dracula, of course. That's the one. Struggling with the sting of rejection, Wilde wrote to Florence declaring that now might be the time for him to finally move to England for good. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to historical figures. Oscar Wilde was drawn to the grandiosity of London and made good on his word, leaving his Irish homestead behind and moving to London in 1878. In 1881, Wilde published a book of poetry to mixed reviews. The overwhelming opinion was that the poems were unoriginal, derivative, and uninspiring. Many did not believe that the work lived up to the reputation that the writer behind them had created for himself. Critics concluded that he had done little more than rip off the greats, including Shakespeare, Byron, and Algernon Swinburne, a favorite of Wilde's. Oscar was even condemned by the Oxford Union for plagiarism. In hindsight, some literary scholars argue that the poems were perhaps not stolen, but too closely inspired by those poets who had come before Wilde. Even the humor and satire magazine popular at the time, Punch, had a go at the poetry collection, writing that, quote, the poet is wild, but his poetry very tame. Yikes, harsh critics. Yeah, no kidding. Despite the lukewarm reception of his poetry collection, Wilde did gain some recognition as an up-and-coming writer. It was 1881, and by now Wilde was a prominent figure of the aesthetic movement, which was still viewed as frivolous and foppish, and remained the object of criticism, satire, and general eye-rolling. Yes, it was a movement that was mocked mercilessly, the height of which came in April of 1881, when dramatist S.W. Gilbert wrote his operatic satire, Patience. Opening at the Opera Comique, the production skewered the movement and introduced the character Bunthorn, an amalgamation of many of the prominent leaders of the aesthetic movement of the time. While Bunthorn was a fictional character, Many believe him to be created in Wilde's image. But Wilde was neither offended nor concerned with these characterizations of him, as unflattering as they may have been. To the contrary, some say Wilde was amused and perhaps even delighted in the attention. Once asked if it was true that he paraded with flowers through a public square as his long hair flowed in the wind, he answered that it was of little importance whether he had or had not, but whether others believed it to be true. Yes, all that really mattered to Wilde, it seems, is that people knew his name. He did say, after all, if not famous, I'll be notorious. And he was right. Patience was well-received in London, and the producer, Richard Doyley Cart, hoped to bring it to American audiences. The opera opened in New York in September of 1881, but there was one catch. The aesthetic movement hadn't quite caught on yet in the United States, and Doyle Cart worried that if he tried to expand the show's American tour, that the show's humor would be lost on the broader audience. But Doyle Cart had a plan to introduce the subject of his show's satire. The producer offered Wilde a lecture tour that he would fund through the United States. This gave Wilde the chance to stand before American audiences and preach the philosophies of the aesthetic movement, seeking the loveliness of art above all else. Wilde was more than happy to accept the position, fancying himself an expert on the matter. He was eager for the opportunity to, as he put it, quote, show the rich what beautiful things they might enjoy, and to show the poor what beautiful things they might create. And so it was decided Wilde would do a coast-to-coast tour of America, promoting the opera as a real-life Bunthorn. Doyle Cart and his business manager, Mrs. Frank Leslie, set out to stir up some interest in the poet's upcoming arrival. He was branded as a visiting artist who had made a profound sensation with his poetry in England, who was coming to America to celebrate the arts and socialize with the cultural elite. A 27-year-old Wilde boarded the SS Arizona on December 24, 1881. Wilde's arrival in America was highly anticipated and shrouded in speculation over what unusual fashion choices the poet would make and whether there was any truth to the tall tale that the poet even ate flowers. Wilde was met with great fanfare when he stepped onto the docks of New York in January 1882 in a flashy green overcoat with extra-wide cuffs and a deep collar trimmed with seal fur. 
The press hung on his every word, publishing the poet's flippant quips. The controversial accounts are said to have exaggerated comments made by Wilde, sometimes simply making them up altogether. In one of these disputed quotes, Wilde expressed his disappointment in the Atlantic Ocean's lack of majesty. When asked at customs if he had anything to declare, he is quoted as saying, I have nothing to declare except my genius. Sure does sound like him. And so legends are born. Wilde's reputation preceded him as he made his way across the United States on his lecture tour over the course of 10 months. His itinerary of daily lectures was exhausting, and he took great pains traveling by train across the vast United States to new city after new city. Wilde complained that the country was flashing by too quickly and that the only real way to get to know a place was to travel through it on horseback, as he had done from time to time when he was studying in Italy. Traveling 15,000 miles, Wilde gave over 140 lectures in the United States and Canada. Even though his lectures were both praised and parodied by the press, his tour turned out to be a financial success. As the saying goes, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And as Wilde learned from his mother in a letter she sent to him during his time on tour, London seemed to be ablaze with the stories of his American conquests. Nothing seems celebrated in London but you, Lady Wilde wrote affectionately to her son while he was away. And so, despite his mixed reviews in the United States, Wilde returned to England in 1883, an even greater celebrity than when he left. The opera Patience, that inspired Wilde's visit to the United States, saw general success in New York, and after that, regional touring companies formed to take it across the country. Wilde said, quote, I put all my genius into my life. I put only my talent into my works. For a time, Wilde struggled to live up to his name as a writer. His first play, Vera, was widely panned as long-winded and dramatic rot. Vera, or The Nihilist, as it was called, was a Russian drama wherein the lead plans to kill the Russian Tsar. While he was on his lecture tour, Wilde entered negotiations with an actor named Steele McKay, who was opening his own theater and was interested in directing the play. In August 1883, just one year after his lecture tour, the play opened in New York City at Union Square Theater. Wilde returned to America to oversee the production, but his visit was short since Vera was extremely unsuccessful and the final curtain for the show fell a week after opening night. His second play, The Duchess of Padua, tells the story of a young man who learns that the Duke of Padua is responsible for ruining his father's life and that he must kill the Duke to avenge his father. Wilde was unable to attach worthy talent, and the play wasn't produced until 1891. Very much in need of money, Wilde took up another British lecture tour of over 150 speaking engagements, though they did not pay as well as his American tour. During this time, Wilde reunited with former acquaintance Constance Lloyd, a true vision. Known for her signature chestnut brown hair, Wilde met Constance by chance when he and his mother were visiting friends in London two years earlier in 1881. Constance was from a respectable family in Dublin, but her parents were unhappily married. Her father was a rumored womanizer and was often away from the family. This left her mother bitter and emotionally unavailable to her children, who in turn became closer to one another. Constance was closest to her brother, Otho. When Wilde first met Constance in 1881, he confided in his mother immediately that he could imagine marrying her. Lady Wilde thus began to establish a courtship between the two, setting them up on tea dates and the like. Constance was well-read and enjoyed Dante and Keats, just like Wilde, and she studied music and painting and was passionate about social reform. The two shared a great love for the arts and were both quite smitten with one another, but their early courtship was interrupted by Wilde's travels to the United States for his lecture tour. But now, in 1883, as he returned from his travels abroad, the timing was right. Despite his ongoing British lecture tour, they continued their courtship, sending romantic letters professing their hopeless love to each other. Lady Wilde and Constance's brother Otho were both very supportive of the relationship and were delighted at the news of their engagement. The two married with pomp and circumstance on May 29, 1884, and settled shortly thereafter in a neighborhood in Chelsea, England. 
After only a few months of marriage, Wilde accepted another lecture tour and gave talks on aestheticism titled The Value of Art in Modern Life and Beauty, Taste, and Ugliness in Dress throughout York, Bristol, and Leeds. Constance wrote to him, lamenting that his tour kept their lips from kissing, and Wilde returned from the tour to find Constance pregnant with their first son. On June 5, 1885, Constance gave birth to Cyril, and just eight months later, she became pregnant again. She gave birth to their second son, Vivian, on November 3, 1886. Wilde delighted in the births of his two sons and was very involved as a father, but he found the added financial burden to be quite heavy. He took writing gigs as a book critic and covered for the editor of Vanity Fair when he was away on vacation. In 1887, Wilde took up the post of editor of Ladies World magazine, and while it afforded him a steady paycheck, the job may have had more appeal to Wilde than just offering a stable income. Wilde intended to transform the magazine from what he referred to as a vulgar, trivial, and stupid production into the recognized organ for the expression of women's opinions on all subjects of literature, art, and modern life. Always the wordsmith. (laughs) He used the magazine as a platform to promote his ideals and tackled topics of fashion and women's education. A firm believer in women's equality, he felt it was high time that women should be able to take their rightful place alongside men, not behind them. He joined the popular debate surrounding dress reform as part of the fight for women's equality, which fought to free women of their painful and restricting corsets and heavy petticoats, allowing them the same liberties and comfort that men had. In his belief that restrictive women's clothing was in part to blame for holding women back in society, he became a chief advocate of pants. Um, pants? That's right, or rather, as they were called at the time, a divided skirt. Go on. (laughs) The idea of women wearing trousers was so scandalous and offensive at the time that a compromise was suggested. Uh, Let me guess. Pant legs that were so wide they looked like a skirt? You got it. It was a look that Constance helped popularize as she herself participated in the Rational Dress Society, sporting the divided skirt as proof that it too could be elegant and flattering. It would not be until long after Wilde's death that pants would become popularized among women's fashion. Always so ahead of his time. But Wilde was fast approaching his time to shine. Wilde grew tired of the repetitiveness of marriage and was displeased with the ways that pregnancy and domestic life changed Constance. He loved her very much, but grew dissatisfied in their marriage. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue our story. Historians cannot confirm exactly when or how a young man named Robert Robbie Baldwin Ross entered Wilde's life. Ross was from a prominent Canadian family who moved to England to study at King's College in Cambridge. As an openly gay man, he was bullied out of school in Cambridge and eventually moved to London to become a journalist. The details are disputed, but Ross soon became a close family friend, boarding with the Wilds and keeping Constance and the boys company when Oscar was on the road touring. Ross was open about his sexuality and same-sex preferences and recognized in Wilde the same desires. Many historians say it was Ross who first seduced Wilde and was his first male lover. Finally in touch with his true feelings and desires, Wilde felt liberated and inspired. He entered into a period of robust creativity. While he was still working as editor of Ladies World magazine in 1888, he experienced a burst of intense creative inspiration. Over the next seven years, he would feverishly write almost all of his most notable works of literature. In 1888, at the age of 34, he published a collection of fairy tales called The Happy Prince and Other Tales, to generally favorable reviews, though many of the tales in the anthology were not intended for children. He then set to work on writing his first and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. 
The novel was inspired by a conversation that Wilde himself had with an artist. While paying a visit to an art gallery, one day, Wilde admired a young man's portrait and lamented that it was a shame someone so attractive would have to grow old. Offhandedly, the painter agreed, saying it would be much better if the painting were to age instead of the young, handsome subject. And so inspiration struck. The novel followed young Dorian Gray, who struck his own Faustian bargain when he made a similar wish. Dorian wanted his portrait, rather than his own face, to wear the weathered signs of his age. He kept the portrait hidden away while it grew older and uglier, and he remained as handsome as ever. The portrait not only aged, but also revealed the unattractive signs of every sin and misdeed made by Dorian, an exchange he paid for dearly. A true product of its author, the novel is full of witty, playful banter and great cares given to the rich, sensory details that bring the story to life, making it feel atmospheric and sinister. Its Faustian themes and same-sex overtones set the British literary scene on fire. Claims of its indecency were stamped across nearly every critic's review, some calling for Wilde's persecution for subverting all British sensibilities of decency. Of course, Wilde defended his work. He said, quote, There is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. End quote. That being said, Wilde did in fact make significant revisions between its original publication in Lippincott's magazine and its release as a standalone novel in order to make the book more morally acceptable to the public. It's been over 100 years since the tale of Dorian Gray first graced the pages of Lippincott's magazine, and it has been revisited many times by book lovers and scholars alike. So despite all of its criticisms, it has turned out to be one of those books that has been enjoyed again and again. So maybe in the end, that's all that matters. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Not everyone who read the book at the time took offense to the novel's murderous protagonist or its gay themes. It's believed that the novel was integral in bringing about the fateful love affair between a young 21-year-old Lord Alfred Douglas and the 36-year-old Oscar Wilde. The two were introduced by mutual acquaintances in 1891, and Lord Alfred was impressed by Wilde's literary achievement and charming wit, while Wilde was attracted to Alfred's youthful beauty. That the commencement of the affair coincides with Wilde's heightened creativity is probably not a coincidence. In this time period, Wilde is believed to have fully bloomed into the truest version of himself, working less to hide his sexual desires and coming into the peak of his literary career. In the years following Dorian Gray, Wilde wrote a number of plays. In 1891, Wilde wrote Salome, a play that retold the story of Herod's stepdaughter, Salome, who danced for the head of John the Baptist. This play was even more controversial than Dorian Gray. At the time, it was forbidden to depict a figure from the Bible in a work of fiction, and the play was subsequently censored and did not see a stage until 1896. Things with Lord Alfred soon became contentious, and Wilde wrote that his lover could be revolting, violent, and offensive. Finally, they agreed to simply be friends, and Wilde began meeting with male sex workers, hiding his encounters from Constance. Through all of this, Wilde kept writing, and soon his creative endeavors took a more comedic and satirical turn. His plays drew inspiration from the social discourse of the time, as well as the works of his peers, which focused on political reform and the societal imbalance between the privileged elite and the working class. One of his more famous plays, Lady Windermere's Fan, was first produced in 1892. It is the story of a Lady Windermere who suspects that her husband is having an affair. However, Lady Windermere meets the suspected mistress and discovers she is not her husband's lover at all. Instead, she learns that this woman is actually her own estranged mother who had abandoned her at birth. Like many authors, Wilde's writing often reflected what was going on in his personal life. Ironic last-act revelations and accounts of masked or mistaken identities are prominent themes in Wilde's writing, which paralleled his own experiences. His novels and plays offered a close look at Wilde's opinions on society and the world. 
Scholars believe that Wilde gave many of his characters the same qualities he had, either intentionally or subconsciously. The leads in his stories often shared his personal point of view on things like marriage, oppressive social traditions, and like Wilde, they took on varied identities as it suited them. Wilde was also known to plagiarize himself, slipping the same jokes and quips into various plays again and again. He was either too lazy to come up with new lines for his plays, or was so amused by his own cleverness that he wanted to reuse them. Probably both. He then went on to write the plays A Woman of No Importance and An Ideal Husband. In 1895, his most celebrated and arguably his best work, The Importance of Being Earnest, was produced. The play is a satirical farce in which the characters dodge and neglect their social obligations by hiding behind fictional personas. Everything in Wilde's career seemed to build toward the importance of being earnest. Audiences delighted in Wilde's signature humor and wit, but were critical of the play, viewing it as trivial and lacking in a real substantial message. However, the play is full of Wilde's cleverness and enhanced by his commitment to the aesthetic movement. Wilde's core beliefs and tongue-in-cheek take on social conventions are emphasized in this play. He even explores posing as something more attractive than you are as a means to pursue greatness, something he had been known to do throughout his life. Wilde said, quote, To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. And Wilde intended to live life to the fullest, above all else. He refused to take life too seriously, and always tried to find the purest pleasures the world could offer. These were the signature philosophies of Wilde's existence. But unfortunately, Wilde was not afforded such luxuries for much longer. The importance of being earnest opened on stage in 1885, two years after it was completed. On opening night, Wilde got word that the Marquess of Queensberry, his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas's father, intended to throw rotten vegetables at him and publicly defame him. You see, the Marquess became furious when he discovered the affair between Wilde and his son. Wilde barred the Marquess from attending the theater on the opening night of his play, but that would not be the last he would hear from him. Oscar Wilde had reached the very top of his fame and critical success, and it would be from these heights that he would soon fall from grace. One day, a letter turned up at Wilde's club. It was short, and it was simple, and it was signed the Marquez of Queensberry, and it would turn Wilde's life upside down. In just six short words, the Marquess's offensive letter openly accused Wilde of engaging in a sexual relationship with other men which was considered a crime at the time. Wilde immediately retaliated, suing the Marquess for libel. But when the Marquess's defense threatened to bring forth testimonies from male sex workers stating their relations with Wilde, he lost the case. Further evidence was brought forward detailing the nature of Wilde's relationship with Lord Alfred. Wilde stood trial on charges of gross indecency, a case he lost. He was sentenced to two years of hard labor in prison, his assets were confiscated and auctioned off to pay for the court fees, and his reputation fell into utter disrepair. It was never confirmed if Constance was aware of her husband's extramarital relationships. Some historians believe she knew and ignored the issue, while others suggest she may have been completely unaware. Constance and their two sons eventually took the last name Holland to disassociate themselves from Wilde and his scandalous downfall. Prison conditions were dreadful, and Wilde suffered a great deal, sleeping on a plank bed without a mattress and spending many hours a day walking on a treadmill as part of his sentence. While serving his time, Wilde penned the 5,500-word love letter De Profundis to Lord Alfred Douglas. The letter is at once bitter and passionate, filled with remorse and longing. The poor living conditions and hardships of prison left Wilde in bad health and he emerged in 1897 at age 43 after his release with one singular possession, his letter to Douglas. His spirit and his career never truly recovered from the scandal, and his body never recovered from his time served in prison. He settled in France, moving into the Hotel d'Alsace in Paris, and briefly reunited with Lord Alfred Douglas. 
Wilde passed away in exile on November 30, 1900, of meningitis at the age of 46. He was buried in Cimetière de Beigneux. In 1909, his remains were moved to the French National Cemetery, or Père Lachaise, in Paris, where he still rests today. An angel sculpture was added to his burial site in 1909 and for decades has been the destination of many devoted fans who come to pay their respects to the poet and playwright with a kiss, leaving it marked with hundreds of lipstick kisses. In 2011, a glass was installed around the tomb to preserve it from damage. As recently as 2017, with the implementation of the United Kingdom's Policing and Crimes Act, which moved to exclude same-sex acts from criminal behavior, Wilde was pardoned, along with 50,000 other men who had been persecuted. His criminal record has been wiped clean. Wilde said, quote, All authority is quite degrading. It degrades those who exercise it and degrades those over whom it is exercised. Disobedience is man's only virtue. It is through disobedience that progress has been made through disobedience, and through rebellion. Along with his famous contributions to the literary world, it is also this rebellious spirit that we celebrate in honor when we pick up one of Wilde's famous literary works. A champion of honest self-expression, he was a man who bucked at conventions and scoffed at authority. Wilde's literary contributions are sometimes viewed by scholars as somewhat flawed or imperfect, as they contain arguably meandering or underdeveloped superficial plots. Despite such criticism, they have certainly endured the test of time, and audiences still enjoy them for their clever witticisms and for their honesty. Yes, they were honest and true to who Wilde was, and offer an unencumbered view of the world through his eyes. Wilde once said, quote, if one cannot enjoy reading a book over and over again, then there is no use in reading it at all. And of course, they have been reread many times over, stacking up to even wild standards. Indeed, they have. And while there remains some mystique to the legend that surrounds the life and death of Oscar Wilde, one thing is absolutely certain. Just as he predicted, he did become famous. He even became notorious. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network, or through our website, Parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Lisa Fry and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.